This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Beta. Uh, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, our focus, contemporary spirituality. Our guest today, Dr. Larry Brilliant. He is a pioneering physician, visionary technologist, and global philanthropist. Uh, and this will come out in the interview. He's done amazing work. And uh, two things I want to say uh, before we start the interview, uh, Larry. Uh, number one, We've had a lot of people on this show with interesting backgrounds. Yours is probably, uh, from what I can been reading about you, is the most interesting. Uh, and number two, we also, Phil and I, have discussed a lot about how people uh, have deep spiritual experiences and how many of those people take those uh, that inner growth and bring it uh, into the world to uh, help uplift humanity. And, and you have done that remarkably. And, uh, and finally, uh, your book. Uh, sometimes brilliant, the impossible adventure of a spiritual seeker and visionary physician who helped conquer the worst disease in the world. Uh, I started reading the book last night. It's like about, uh, you know, 400 pages. I got about 100 pages through it before I fell asleep. It, it, you can't put it down. I highly recommend the book. Uh, and thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Larry, now with that uh, fabulous introduction, um, you have had a very interesting life, to say the least. And is, is it all over? You're <laughs> it's just beginning. One yeah. of them, <laughs> and I'm sure it's continuing to. Be <laughs> um, and uh, I, I always worry with that introduction. You know, yes, like, I get it. Again, it's like getting a lifetime achievement award. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you can't. You can't, you can't go next. back. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, we can talk about that later, but, um, <laughs> one of the things, uh, that's most interesting, um, you're one of a number of people who have, who went on to live interesting lives, uh, uh and make great contributions who were, uh, deeply influenced by one guru in one little ashram in Northern India. And, um, uh, maybe you could fill us in, fill the listeners in who don't know the story on how you came to meet Neem Karoli Baba and um, what developed from there. I think people should read your book. Um, I think that the way that you have described uh, American Veda, and, and really by that, the Americans who come in contact with the great wisdom traditions of India, Hinduism, the Vedas, but not only Hinduism. The, the, that I hope that I'm a footnote in that great, amazing lineage. Lineage is one of its charms, I think. Um, because for me it was, you know, I always thought of it uh, as I got to a Himalayan ashram, uh, it was the usual career path in the 60s. Uh, you know, I was an anti-war activist. I had met Martin Luther King when I was a, a junior in college, University of Michigan. He changed me from being a, a depressed, solipsistic narcissist, I think. <laughs> At least moved, moved the needle a little bit. <laughs> and then I, I was an activist, and that's all that I knew was political activism. And then I met... You know, Kesey, Wavy Gravy, the hog farm, and all of a sudden, here was the counterculture, and I, I eased into that. Uh, 
And then I wound up uh, traveling all through Asia. And the magic of that kind of life that just seemed so close but so far away, this kind of the dance of a of a hundred veils that you experience if you drive as we did from from London to Kathmandu. Um, it entranced me. And then my wife discovered Neem Karoli Baba. Um, we read Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now, and she figured out that there was somebody behind Ram Dass that had been his <laughs> teacher. I was pretty content to just think Ram Dass was really cool. <laughs> and she went to see him, Neem Karoli Baba, and then uh, I came back to the United States to take care of my friend Wavy Gravy, who was sick, and and that followed along. There followed a long, you know, crackly phone calls from India to San Francisco, negotiating the terms of my surrender, uh, <laughs> and, and that I would go back to India to meet with this fat old man in a blanket in the Himalayas. I had no interest in meeting, in exchange for my wife coming back to spend Christmas, the holidays, with me. Um, she won. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. That's fascinating. So you didn't go to India uh, on the Ramdas Trail to meet Neem Karoli. You were there for other reasons. And that's correct. Neither one of us did. We we mm-hmm. we did when we drove in two psychedelic painted buses coming over from you know Iraq, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, Pakistan, <coughs> India, and we drove into the center of New Delhi in, in Connaught Circus, and we parked our two funny-looking buses in the middle of the center of New Delhi. <clears throat> and we did then what every young Westerner did. The moment you came into a capital city, we went to the American Express office to pick right. up our mail. <laughs> and a check, and maybe. <laughs> you had a check mail there? <laughs> it, 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 exactly. I mean, we all, we all did that. And it just happened, as so many other things just happened, that... Uh, as we were standing in line, the person at, in front of Wavy in the line uh, was this character, Baba Ramdas, and he was waiting oh to get God. the first copies wow. of his book called Be Here Now. Wow. And it just happened that my wife and I, two years earlier, had listened to his lectures and plunked down $3.33 for our copy of Be Here Now, and it hadn't yet arrived. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But, wow. Uh, you know, you know, he gave uh, one of them to Wavy. Yeah, Larry, uh, I wanted to ask, I, I read, somebody wrote about you and they said somehow you were always in the right place at the right time. Uh, and it certainly seems, hearing your story, that just like the encounter with uh, uh, Baba Ram Dass, that how, how uh, coincidental that was. And it seems like there were a number of situations like that in your life uh, that, that moved you forward. Do you think that by divine intervention... How does that happen? I think God took compassion on me because I was such a stubborn asshole and could never have gotten there on my own. And that, <laughs> and you know, I mean, I, I I can't answer that question in any deep spiritual way. I can just say it always seemed to me that had I been left to my own devices. I would have made the wrong decision every single time. Right. Well, and, and I, I, I want to um, just follow up and, and let our listeners know. I mean, I read, I mean, you, 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 you were in a movie, you played the part of a doctor, which you were a doctor, and you got paid with tickets, uh, airline tickets to India. You cashed in the tickets to go to Europe and tour, rent buses 
and then somehow you went from Europe to, to India. I mean, it's a remarkable story. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I have to say, I mean, I was adventuresome back then, but you were even more adventuresome. What, were you worried <laughs> about your medical career at that time, or were you just open to discover new things, or what motivated you? Oh, you know, it's always a combination of motivations. I wanted to stay with my wife, who I loved, and we've been married now 47 years, and they say that hippie relationships don't last. I mean, <laughs> um, I, I think that was part of it. Um, I think coming from Detroit, Michigan, um, I really wanted to see the rest of the world. Um, I think that was part of it. Uh, I, You know, I... The retrospectoscope is the most valuable medical instrument that we have as a physician. It may be the only one that actually is accurate. And if I view my life through the retrospectoscope, it seems that I was always trying to find the place that there was the most love and loving people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's unusual. Um, I found so much love in, in the... Uh, in the activist community against the war in Vietnam and in the, the, in the community around Martin Luther King, marching with Martin Luther King, I was once, I say arrested, that's not really true, but I was detained uh, with 300 other people who had been um, marching with Martin Luther King. And um, another great wavy gravyism is, is if you're going to be arrested for a noble cause, always be arrested with two or 300 of your closest friends <laughs> because then they put you in pretend jail, you know, and that means you get to have somebody with a guitar. <laughs> and I got to hear Martin Luther King sing among all of the rest of us, amazing grace in, wow. in a, you know, in a, in a converted uh, park in Grant Grants park in Chicago when we were all arrested. Um, you know, you, how could, how could you have planned for that? Um, I didn't plan to meet Wavy Gravy, and I met him the first day of a movie caravan. And my job, ironically, as a Warner Brothers you know, extra playing a doctor in this crazy movie, my job on the first day was to vaccinate the crew, the movie crew, wow. which was going to be the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane, but the Grateful Dead didn't show up. So it was, you know, wound up being Pink Floyd and Jeff, Jethro Tull and a lot of mm -hmm. other cool people. And I, I, I vaccinated the crew against smallpox. I had never wow. vaccinated anybody against smallpox before. I didn't really know what smallpox was. I mean, we sort of studied it in medical history. Um, but they wanted the crew vaccinated because they thought that we were going to do a final concert in, in um, Canterbury with Pink Floyd. And if the crew wanted to come back, they had to have a little yellow card. Um, I didn't have any idea that years later I'd wind up working for the program that did eradicate smallpox and work for the UN. So I, I don't know how to make this stuff up. Um, it, it just, you asked, did I feel a divine hand? Um, I feel a divine hand in everything that I do, including the stuff that doesn't work out well. <laughs> so uh, these things though, that, that uh, as you say, somebody wrote about um, that I'm, I was at the I was in the right place at the right time. I think all of us are always at the right place at the right time. Sometimes the retrospectoscope allows us to enlarge or, you know, make smaller some of those experiences. But uh, since you brought up the um, smallpox uh, story, um, let's uh, connect the dots for uh, listeners who don't know. Uh, it was Neem Karoli Baba who essentially told you to do that. Um, and set you on the path of 
of the kind of uh, public health efforts you you've done the rest of your career or uh, since then but he told you you should join the uh, world health organization efforts to eradicate smallpox in india if i'm correct and how did you react at that time you were a young doctor you probably didn't have much time <laughs> being well let me let me answer that question but first i have to make a comment because uh, when I was at Google, uh, and I would, you know, pride myself on being able to be funny and give talks. Uh, my my best friend at Google was a woman named Cheryl Sandberg. She's now quite famous for yeah, and on the Facebook. cover of Time Magazine as we speak. Oh, is she? Her new book. I'm going there tonight <laughs> to see the. Uh, mm. She's announcing a new book. Well, she she said to me that I could never really be a good public speaker unless I could deliver an entire one hour talk without mentioning the word smallpox. <laughs> and I failed, and I'm going to fail again today, yes. and I failed completely to uh, do that until maybe about a year ago. So it's pretty recent that I've been able to, to give a talk without talking about smallpox. So, so um, my wife, Girija, and I, she was originally Elaine. She became Girija. Um, I was Larry, then I was Dr. America, then I was Subramanian. Then again, I was Larry. It just works out that way. Um, and we were living uh, in a place called Kenshi, which is near Nanital, in a state that uh, used to be called Uttar Pradesh. It's now called Uttar Anshal, that part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, we were in love, I mean, with each other. We were in love with uh, God, with the search for God, the Sanatangadam, the perennial philosophy. And uh, one day I was sitting off in a corner and I was meditating and Maharaji, who used to throw away, Maharaji Ninkroli Baba, our guru, um, and he used to throw apples and oranges at everybody as prashad, as a gift. Uh, suddenly he started throwing a lot of them at me. Um, they seemed to be strategically aimed. Uh, <laughs> the, each one with um, greater and greater force would land in my testicles. And, and I, I took that as a sign he had something he wanted to say to me. <laughs> And he, he called me over and he said, Dr. America, how much money do you have? And, you know, up until now, we'd been there for about two or three years and the money had never come up. You try to give him money, he would laugh, he wouldn't take it. But, but then there was just that one second of doubt. Is this going to be a scam? I mean, it couldn't be a scam. He had just brought me to God. He had made me feel that I loved everybody in the world and opened up my heart and I, it couldn't be a scam. Dr. America, how much money do you have? And then that second of paranoia passed, and I said, well, I have $500. And he said, $500, jute bolo, you're lying. And I, he never said anything like that to me. I said, no, no, that's, that's what I have. He said, oh, you mean here, how much do you have back in America? I said, well, I've got five, about five, you know, I calculated all the money that I'd made working in an emergency room after I paid off my debts. I thought we still had around $500 back in a bank account in America, uh, kind of our get out of jail, not so free money. And uh, I said $500 there. And then he started to chant in Hindi, kind of sing song way that he would do and laugh. He said, $500 here, $500 there, $500 here, five. you are no doctor, which is exactly what my mother used to say to me. <laughs> you have only $500, you're not a real doctor. <clears throat> and then I was feeling kind of small and bad and, and he was laughing at me, he was tugging at my beard, he was kind of smacking my face and with love, you know. And then he said to me, 
in Hindi, you are no doctor. Tumto doctor Nahin. You are no doctor. You are no doctor. And then he changed into English. He looked at me and he said, you are no doctor. U-N-O doctor. Uh-huh. United Nations doctor. Dr. America is going to become United Nations doctor. Wow. And then he pulled out my hand and he made a mark on my my forearm as if he was pounding it with his finger. He says, you're going to go to villages and give vaccinations because you're going to help to eliminate. Unmulan was the word he used. You probably know the Sanskrit, Phil. Unmulan means to pull out by the roots, and it's the same etymology as the word eradicate because rad is radish, radical, root. Mm-hmm. And he said, you're going to go to villages and help eradicate this terrible Mahamari or, or epidemic, pandemic, word I'd never heard before. Um, you're going to help eradicate smallpox. And then he said, this is God's gift to humanity, that one form of suffering will be plucked out from the list of the burdens that humans must carry. One form of suffering is going to be eliminated. Go, chow, chow, leave right now, go. <laughs> and I said, what, what's going on? Does he want me to give him a vaccination? I mean, I just, <laughs> you asked what my state of mind was, utter confusion. What, what were your next steps after that? Did you get on a plane and head back to the States? Did you stay in India? Where did you go from there? Well, we were kind of, you know, the, mom- the moment he said go, you know, all of the kind of people in the ashram began to implement that command. <laughs> we were being expelled, it seemed to me. Um, and he pushed, we were pushed out the door and you know, told to go to New Delhi and go to the United Nations office, the World Health Organization office, to find my job. And we did just that. So we got on a taxi and went to the bus stop and took a bus and a train and a rickshaw and took about 15 or 16 hours overnight. And the next morning we, you know, we, we got a taxi and we said, do you know where the World Health Organization office is? Because we didn't. And they drove us there. And I walked in and there was this wonderful uh, Anglo, we, we call her Anglo-Indian woman uh, at the at the receptionist named Mrs. Edna Boyer. And I didn't know her then, of course. And I went up to her and she said, hello. I said, hi. And she said, what are you here for? I said, my guru who lives in the Himalayas says that smallpox is going to be eradicated. This is God's gift to humanity. And I'm supposed to be here and work for you. (laughs) Now, if you had looked at us, you would see a long haired hippie with hair down the middle of my back. My beard was down to my belly button. I was still wearing the ashram robe and pajamas, it looked like I was wearing a dress and everybody else was wearing a suit and tie. So they kicked me out, of course. Um, They should have kicked me out. Uh, And we went back up to the ashram, you know, I think the the good term is tail between our legs, Garage and I feeling really awkward. And we weren't sure we were allowed back in, we went back in and Maharaji was all excited and happy, did you get your job yet? And I said, no. He said, go back. So the same thing happened again. Hmm. We went back 17 hours that time, train, a train, a bus, a rickshaw, went back in, saw Mrs. Boyer. I was kicked out again. Um, This happened 15, 16 times over the next three months. And 
after a while, you know, you sort of begin to do the cosmetic things that you can do. I mean, I, I next time I went in, I had pants on, which was an improvement. I, I trimmed my beard, I cut my ponytail, um, I borrowed an ill-fitting suit, each one incrementally making me look more presentable. And I must have been in number 10 or 12, visit number 10 or 12, when she said, look, this isn't going to work, but would you like to fill out an application? <laughs> so I filled out the application, and I, I, one of the things that I recall from that application, well, two things. One, I had to get a reference, somebody who knew my international professional medical work, and there was no one except a doctor in London that I had done an, an, in, an externship with when I was in medical school. But the thing that I remember the most is where it says place from which you are being deputed. And that's where you're supposed to write CDC or the National Institute of Health or the Marinakova Laboratory in Moscow because everybody working for WHO was deputed from some national agency, some big important agency. And I didn't know what to write, so I wrote the Neem Karoi Baba Monkey Temple in the Himalayas. <laughs> and, you know, I can just absolutely guarantee you the one complete veritas of my entire life is that I am the only person in the history of the United Nations to have joined the United Nations having been deputed from the Neem Karoi Baba Monkey <laughs> Temple in the Himalayas. That's great. Well, and and, and, and then, you did it. Yeah, you did it. And and then where did it go from there? At, at what point did you get on board and uh, start your work in the eradication of smallpox? So one day, I mean, again, now we're at maybe 14 or 15 times coming down to WHO. I walked in. By now I had a suit and tie on. My hair was trim. Um, I, you can't take the, you know, they say you can take Detroit out of the boy. You can't take the boy out of Detroit, the other way around, I think. Um, but I was still who I was. And um, I walked in there, and, and uh, there was a tall man, looked like he was American, looked like a football coach, who was also waiting to be seen by somebody in, in WHO. And uh, Mrs. Boyer said, hey, you two are Americans. You know each other, or you should know each other. And this is the first American I had seen in the UN office in the 15 times I'd gone there. And uh, he said, hi, who are you? And I said, hi, my name's Larry Brilliant. I'm a doctor. I'm living in a, an ashram in the Himalayas. My guru said that smallpox is going to be eradicated. This is God's gift to humanity because of the great work that health workers are doing. Who are you? He said, I'm D.A. Henderson. I'm the head of the smallpox eradication program in Geneva. We don't have a program in India because Mrs. Gandhi won't let us have one here. But... That's why I'm here. I'm here to meet her tomorrow, and I have one medical officer from France named Nicole Grasset. We don't have a program, but let's go in the cafeteria, and I can interview you in case we ever do have a program. And he interviewed me, and he sent me off. Ten years later, when I was a professor at the University of Michigan, after we had eradicated smallpox, D.A. Henderson was the dean of Johns Hopkins and he called me and he said, would I please go back to India, go back to the WHO office and collect all the records from our, what was then historic eradication of smallpox. 
and put them in an archive um, and uh, microfilm them for, for history. So I did, and to do that, he shipped all those, micro, all, all those records back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where there was a microfilming company, and I had them all microfilmed. And I have to admit that I couldn't resist looking at the one file that was forbidden for me to look at, which was my own personnel file. Mm. And I did, and, and I found that record that he had written <laughs> in the cafeteria that day, the same cafeteria where I ultimately first met Steve Jobs. That's another story. But uh, D.A. had written about me. I have today interviewed a young man, nice young man. They said his name is Larry Brilliant. He says he's a doctor. He does not look like one. <laughs> he, he says his guru told him to come and work for the UN. I've never heard of a more ridiculous explanation. We do not have a place for him. Uh, it, 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 one day maybe he will work in international health, but uh, today there'll be no place for him in the smallpox program. He appears to have gone native. <laughs> oh, no, oh God. And DA uh, uh, became one of my mentors, my best friends. He just died uh, three months ago. We went to his memorial in Baltimore, um, and uh, along the course of it, every word I've ever written about smallpox, all the papers that I've written, the academic papers, a book I wrote in 1980 about smallpox and how we eradicated, and my current book, um, he read every word of it until about the first hundred pages of, of the book that, that you read uh, mm -hmm. last night, because he died in the middle of it. Oh, dear. Sorry to hear that. Um, what a great story. Um, Larry, how does, um, subsequently, uh, you've done a tremendous amount of work in public health and, and philanthropy. How does your early experiences with Neem Karoli Baba and any other spiritual um, engagement you've had, how does that inform your service work? I know Neem Karoli imbued uh, in many people uh, a sort of mandate to serve. Does that continue? Did it continue in your life? You, you wrote something really interesting in your book, Phil. It, it said that you were astonished, I think, to find that whereas in the Bible there's an expression, um, love the Lord your, your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and you describe that as the three of the pathways that the Vedas or Hinduism provide for different souls to do. That you could love the Lord your God with all your heart, be a bhakti uh, with all your soul. You could be a jnani or a mystic, of, uh, or you could love the Lord your God with all your might. You could be a karma yogi. And that's sort of the way it was with Neem Karoli Baba. He would give each one of us a different career, a different path to God, a different yo yoga or dharma. Or, um, he would read our, uh, you know, read our Akashic records and you know, give us each a path that was fit for us. But they were always, not always, but most of the time, they had some element of service in them. And that was the part that was predominant in what he told me. And he gave me a, a path that you're familiar with called Nishkam Karma Yoga the yoga of working in the world, but not being attached to your own name or fame or to the fruits of your work or, or to your success. Um, and that, but, but it was the work part that really 
got me because it, it sounded like tikkun olam mm. uh, in Judaism, to heal the broken world. This, I was raised with the idea that it was everybody's responsibility, and to be honest, every Jew's responsibility, but it was everybody's responsibility to make the world better, to heal the broken world. Mm-hmm. And, and the, these two pathways for me, I hadn't, yet, I hadn't yet discovered Buddhism or Islam or even really fully understood you know, the part of Christianity that I resonate with so strongly. But these two pathways in Judaism and Hinduism, were, were, they were both what I got from Maharaji, to work to make the world a better place. And, and I got lucky because eradicating a disease is, is sort of an unalloyed good. I mean, it's an easy one. <laughs> Once right. you've done that, you, I just wanted to do something else like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to, because Maharaji died while we were in the middle of the smallpox program. So I wanted that the next thing I did was as close to that as I could do because I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, we started Save a Foundation. Uh, my wife and Wavy and his wife, Jahanara and Ram Das and a lot of the people you know, Krishna Das and Jagannath Das and a bunch of eye doctors and a lot of epidemiologists and UN officials. We all started this spiritually motivated group, not a religious group, a spiritually motivated group, Seva. Um, and now, 40 years later, Seva's programs have given back sight to more than 4 million blind people. And and so that felt like it was the right thing to do. It, it felt similar. And then I got involved in polio eradication and working on tsunamis and stopping pandemics. And, and even when I went to Google, it was sort of the same thing to run the Google Foundation. And then I met Jeff Skoll, and he has been supporting the Skoll Global Threats Fund, which helps us work on pandemics, especially in climate and water and ending nuclear weapons. So it's all, you know, as you said earlier, it's, it, I've stumbled upon it, it seems to me. I, I never, that was the only job I ever applied for was at WHO. The rest sort of just happened, it seems like. Larry, uh, and here, here's the main question. Does your mother consider you a doctor? <laughs> My mother is 97, and she uh, absolutely uses the fact that I'm a doctor to get uh, uh, restaurant reservations when I take her out to eat. Um, and will, will always introduce me as her doctor from India, her, her son, the doctor from India. Oh, that's, that's great. great. Uh, Larry, you mentioned uh, you met uh, Steve, Steve Jobs at one point, and also yeah, from there, uh, subsequent to that, You've gotten involved and gotten support to do good works in the world from Silicon Valley uh, companies. Uh, tell us about your meeting with Steve Jobs and, and your connection to Silicon Valley. Well, I, I mentioned it not to drop a name. I mentioned because that, that uh, restaurant that uh, DA interviewed me on and that exact table that he had interviewed me on was where I first met Steve um, when he was barefoot, 19, wow. and um, hungry. And, and like all the kids who came from the U.S. or from France or from Japan to, to find a, a spiritual teacher in the Himalayas, you go through a period of time when you run out of money and another period of time when you, when you desperately want to eat some lettuce that's safe. <laughs> I know and the, the feeling, WHO yeah. building, had, you know exactly, yeah. <laughs> the WHO building had uh, air conditioning and it had safe lettuce and safe salads. And so uh, I had been a barefoot hippie who had run out of money and was looking for lettuce uh, six months earlier. Now I'm a UN officer and wearing a three-piece suit. 
So a lot of the kids who came and were just the same as me, or I was just the same as them, uh, they would hear that one of their own was now working in a place that had air conditioning and salads. And so there was a never-ending line for Mrs. Boyer at the front desk <laughs> to welcome and say, oh, you must be here to see Larry Brilliant. <laughs> and uh, Steve was one of those. And he, he showed up one day. Actually, he showed up one day barefoot, and Mrs. Boyer sent him out and made him put sandals on. Um, and he came back, and I was there, and I took him to lunch. And that's how we met. Um, wow. He was 19. Wow. So you, I wasn't much more. I must have been 25, I think. Did you have a sense at that time that this guy was very creative, that he might go on to do things, or was he just another guy in the ashram? Um, no, I did not have that. I mean, I, I felt he was very intense and um, incredibly curious. He wanted to know everything. He didn't know about, like, none of us knew anything about the UN. You know, what was it? Where did it come from? What were we trying to do? You know, all of those questions. He was asking tons and tons of questions, and I loved that. But that, that's what made him, that's, if there was one thing that made him stand apart, it was his um, inquiring mind. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Larry, if I'm going to shift gears, if, you, if it's okay with you. Um, you've had this incredibly interesting life and um, have known some amazing, uh, fabled human beings. Um, we, which, and we've only scratched the surface of, the, of a long list of them. Um, but uh, toward the end of your book, uh, Sometimes Brilliant, you... Um, uh, something just happened yeah, to the phone. Yeah, something's happening with the sound. Yeah, I hear a background buzz, but uh, I think we should move on because everybody's okay. speech is coherent. So, yeah, it's okay. a cosmic... Um, um, yeah. Uh, so, Larry, at, at one point toward the end of the book, you recount something uh, tragic in your life. You, you lost a child um, and had a, essentially a spiritual crisis. Um, this comes, came after many, many decades of, you know, uh, karma being very good to you. And then this happened, and, and I wonder if you'd share with our listeners how you dealt with that as a spiritual person and how you came out of it, because uh, the symbolism of you taking um, photos of Neem Karoli and others off your wall in anger and then putting it back was uh, very moving to me. Of course, it's very hard to talk about stuff like that. Um... Especially hard, you know, when you're talking into a phone, into a radio, and yeah. and, and it goes out. Um, I I think, you know, at one point I counted in the thousands the number of other people's children I saw die, um, babies who died of smallpox, or it, you know, I it was more than once. Maybe it was half a dozen times that my Jeep, which had a UN seal on it, and therefore looked important or authoritative, or would dr drive into a village where there were children who had, were dying of smallpox, and a mother would come and hand me her baby and say, UN doctor, save my child. And of course, I couldn't do anything. I was helpless. Um, many of the times, that child was already dead. Mm. I was in villages where there were bodies stacked like cords 
of wood of children who died of smallpox. 250,000 kids died of smallpox during the time that I was in India, and half a billion people died of smallpox during the last century, the, the 20th century. That's not a word, oh, that's 500 million. It was a vast river of death. In, in, in fact, once we were told that the local river didn't run because of all the dead bodies. So I, I say that before I talk about my own son to realize and to remember that um, that's part of all of our life. It's not just the tragedy touched me or my wife. You know, the famous Buddhist story of you know, a woman coming up to Buddha and saying, my son has died, bring him back to life. And Buddha said, yes, I will do it if you will go to your village and go door to door and find a single house in which death has not touched that house and bring me back one, one seed of the sm smallest seed that you could find. And the woman came back and said, I can't find a house that hasn't been touched by death. So, so I'd seen a lot of death, and I'd, I think I had intellectually and even that, that kind of spiritualism, which is intellectual spiritually, maybe spiritual materialism. I had, I had kind of thought that having seen so much death that I was immunized against my own suffering, or I was immunized against, or I was protected or prepared in some way. And and when my son, um, who was 27 when he died, got lung cancer, um, which, you know, that doesn't happen. You shouldn't happen, you, you know. Mm. I mean, parents should not have to see their children die, ever. Mm. Um, and it, it was more than I could bear, of course, and more than my wife could bear. And we went through... We all learned the stages of grief, uh, but I didn't know there was another stage of grief if you're, you know, if you're a spiritual person but not fully cooked, which is always the case for me, that you go through a period of, of loss and denial and compromise, and then you go through anger at God, mm. or at least I did, mm -hmm. and a feeling of betrayal, um, and, and, um, of course, I wanted to exchange my life for my son's life. That goes without saying. We all—that's the bargain that we all want to make. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, had, I had some wonderful friends around me: Ramdas and and Wavy and all the people that you know in our satsang who came to our house and helped us and helped Kirija. And it took us a couple of years. Uh, you, you mentioned we took all the the photos of Maharaji off, we took all the spiritual memorabilia off. Well, we sold a lot of our, you know, our Buddhist icons because we didn't want around. We were, you know, we, our house looked like a, an ecumenical retreat. We had mezuzahs and crosses and, and we got rid of all of them. And, and just, you know, you could say we stewed or we felt self pity or, we were just broken. It, 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 you don't need a fancy word. We were just broken. Um, and then gradually, uh, I think we realized that it wasn't that we were betrayed. Of course not. It was that we were human. Mm -hmm. And that, and that, 
you know, I mean, I remember we started joking. Maybe the first jokes that we told after my son died was, you know, Buddha was right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Buddha and, and the, you know, the, the fourfold, four noble truths, the, the last of which there's, that there's, there's old age and there's suffering and there's death. And then, of course, there's an answer to the suffering. And, but it's not so easy no. to, to remember that in the moment. And, and, and the last uh, four years after my son has died, um, I wouldn't say that we've recovered. I don't think that you ever go back to the person you were before. Mm-hmm. I would say we crawled, we clawed ourselves out of that deep hole. And we're different. Mm-hmm. We're different now. Um, mm-hmm. My compassion is much more real. Mm-hmm. It was fake. It, my compassion was built on seeing hundreds or thousands of other people's children die. Mm-hmm. I, I slow down uh, when people tell me about their, mm-hmm. their suffering. I, I think I, I probably ran right through it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... But, I had such a, a big denominator. Somebody told me that their child was sick or their mother had died. I think it just sort of, it got, I, I lost it. And I, don't, I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have to stop. And I'm much more present, I think, mm-hmm. than, than I was before. I miss my son terribly. It's been brutal on my other kids. It's hard. And it's hard for every single person who goes through through the death of their mother or their father or their children or their grandchildren or watches somebody die on television. If you're, if you're open, you can't, you can't see that without going through all the stages of grief and love and resurrecting your own spiritual path, questioning the decisions that you've made. Well, thank you for being Beautifully put, Larry. Larry, I wanted to ask one final question, and that is, you've had a remarkable life, and everybody should wish they could have accomplished uh, a, a small fraction of what you've done in your life. But you're energized, you're, uh, you're ready to go forward, and uh, what, what are your plans? What would you like to uh, further do I- into the future, and uh, what's on your, you know, your agenda? What projects do you have, and what goals do you set for yourself now? Well, I'm, you know, I still try to uh, adhere to the path closest to the one that my guru gave me. And so I'm working on uh, pandemics. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm worried uh, that these words that we've all become inured to, Zika and Ebola and swine flu and SARS and MERS, you know, it's not normal to have uh, such a uh, profusion of bad bugs jumping from animals to humans. It, it, you know, you, you think about your own life 30 years ago. You didn't hear all these new no. new viruses that mm-hmm. were coming out. And part of it is that we're, we're getting better at finding them. But a major part of it is there's just more of them because of overpopulation of humans, animals and humans living in each other's territory. And some of these are really terrible. We are, this week, memorializing the 100th anniversary of the Spanish influenza, the great influenza of 1917, wow. 18, and 19, mm-hmm. which killed 25 to 100 million people wow. when there was only 2 billion people in the world. And so I'm working on that, 
and it's gotten more vital for me, uh, and I do this through the, the work I do with Jeff Skoll um, and the Skoll Global Threats Fund and the pandemic work with my partner, Mark Smolinski, a wonderful epidemiologist. But, but it's not only that there are more bad bugs, it's that if you think about Trump and Brexit and the mm-hmm. elections going on in, in France as we speak, and you, you look at what's happening to the disrespect that's in which the UN is held, mm. that WHO collapsed and failed, during, which it did during the Ebola response. And you, you, these are all centrifugal forces which are pulling us apart. I'm, I wrote that book that you have in part because it was Christians and Buddhists and Hindus and Jews and Muslims and Baha'is and Shinto and atheists who all worked together and their faces were black and yellow and brown and white and red and they came from 170 countries and we worked together as brothers and sisters and to eradicate the first disease in the world and we're about to eradicate polio and we're about to eradicate anyone if you just read the papers you would think we're all a bunch of dumb screw-ups and we can't get anything done we're just a bunch of incompetent people and we have to go to our corners and work with people who look like us or believe like us that's Mm -hmm. not true we're so much better and richer Mm -hmm. when we work with people from all over the world together that's part of the magic and i think the mystery of why god built us this way and these days that international world is not working very well and the the organizations that we require to protect us from a pandemic are not working very well. So I'm, I'm, I'm alarmed at the number and frequency of bad bugs jumping out, and I'm concerned that the institutions, the World Health Organization, our own government, uh, that we would depend upon, not in a mystical way, but in a very practical way to protect us, they're not as strong as they need to be, and I'm trying to revitalize them and um, put together organizations to protect us. And I, you know, I'm one of hundreds of people who are thousands of people who are doing that. And that's, I still consider that my spiritual path. That's mm-hmm. the beauty of what I think Maharaji gave me in a way the hardest and the easiest path. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the hardest because it's it's very hard to think that you're you're trying to do work to make the world a better place without getting an exaggerated sense of your own importance, which is what Nish Karma Yoga teaches us. But it's the easiest because he told me to do it. Mm, Wonderful. Thank you so very much. Any final uh, thoughts or or points, uh, Phil? I would just quickly ask Larry if there's anything the ordinary listener can do to help in that effort you just described. Great point. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Don't give up. <laughs> don't don't think that uh, Trump's election is the bell uh, in a boxing match. This is go to your respective corners, <laughs> and that and 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 don't think for a moment that that great mystical wisdom that we all felt in the '60s that there was a kind of peace and justice and love was right around the corner. This is not just the hundredth anniversary of the great pandemic it's the 50th anniversary of the summer of love that's right don't don't right. don't forget that we that moment wow. that you've had in your own life that it felt like there was truth and justice and goodness and mercy and love just around the corner it still is just around the corner and and don't think 
that because other people are throwing out words that are hurtful or unkind or trying to separate us, don't think that is the way that it should be, that it needs to be, or that it will be, especially if your feet will jump on that path and grab that arc of the moral universe that, that Martin Luther King said. And as he said to me in Ann Arbor, and to all the people who were there, he said, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, but it ain't going to bend towards justice unless you get your ass out of your chair and jump up and grab that arc and twist it and bend it towards justice. And that's what we all have to do. We know that. Wow. Great. Well, it's been well, thank a- you. absolutely wonderful having you on, very inspiring, and uh, I wish you great success. And again, for our listeners, the book, Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician, who helped conquer the world's uh, worst disease in history. Uh, go out, get the book, read it, and uh, uh, thank you so much, Larry, and, and uh, keep up the good work. The world needs people like you. It's so nice to talk to you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you.